At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. It's time to announce New York's Michelin-starred restaurants. Last year, Chef Vijay Kumar was at the Michelin Guide Ceremony in New York, where Michelin awards their famous stars. Vijay thought maybe his restaurant, Sema, was in the running. So as they read out the list of winners... You could tell my legs were kind of shivering because they were reading all the list alphabetically. 63 Clinton! So Sema is like all the way in the bottom. So it's like by the time when they were reading all the list, oh my God, that was super, super stressful. I almost got a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Vijay grew up in Tamil Nadu in the south of India. After going to culinary school and working in a couple restaurants there, he made his way to California. In 2021, he moved to New York to become executive chef at Sema, which would be a brand new restaurant serving authentic, regional, South Indian cuisine in a fine dining setting. And when it opened, Sema was a big hit. But at the Michelin ceremony, Vijay didn't know what to expect. He wasn't sure whether his restaurant was Michelin material. The announcers at the event worked their way through the alphabet. There we go. <laughs> So then, finally, we're reading all the letters from A to B. Sima! Chef Vijay Kumar! Like, oh my God. <laughs> so what did it mean to you to win that award, especially for cooking hardcore South Indian food? I feel like it's like a victory for uh, regional Indian food. This is not just for me, this is for my country. I completely dedicate this to my country, my cuisine, for everyone. So I, I feel like it's still a long, long way to go. This is just the beginning. I think there's so much responsibility that we can push it more forward. Before the Michelin star, Sema's business was already good. But after the star, Vijay says the average number of people on the wait list for a last-minute reservation went from 700 per night to 1,400. That same year, about 500 other restaurants around the world were awarded Michelin stars for the first time. Just a few weeks ago, the guide made its 2023 announcements for New York, D.C., and Chicago, and Sema kept its star. The stars clearly boost a restaurant's business, and they can cement a chef's reputation as one of the best. But in recent years, questions have arisen about Michelin's process. Sema is one of only three Indian restaurants in America with a star. Most of the winners are European or Japanese restaurants. And there are whole cities that don't have any stars, like Philadelphia, Houston, and Seattle. Today we'll ask, how does the Michelin Guide actually work? And is it a system diners should trust? This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Even if you've never eaten in a Michelin-starred restaurant, you're probably aware of the star's significance. They're often referenced in shows where characters are working in or eating at high-end restaurants. Oh, you're the Michelin chef. Yes. Oh. We got that call, the three-star call. Michelin sends its inspectors to restaurants to eat and award stars. One, two, three. Or none. You can't know this, but my girlfriend Marianne wants to give your restaurant a Michelin star. But for all the airplay that Michelin stars get, we don't really know that much about them. 
The guide's rating system is secretive. All of its inspectors have to remain completely anonymous. During their tenure, anyway. I was able to talk with one. Chris Watson, former Michelin inspector. Chris was a Michelin inspector in the UK in the 80s. Now he lives in Thailand, where he operates a food guide called Thailand's Favorite Restaurants. He also owns a consulting company for restaurants and hotels looking to earn Michelin stars. Chris grew up on the west coast of Scotland. He liked the idea of going into hospitality, figured he'd become a hotel manager. Then, one day, he saw an ad in the paper for a different side of the hospitality business. Michelin was hiring a new inspector for the UK. I knew a little bit about the Michelin guide, but not huge amounts. But they get thousands of applications for arguably one position. Chris applied and quickly learned that the vetting for this position was intense. I think uh, 150 question, multiple choice paper asking, how do you make a Bernays sauce? What's Tornador Rossini? So the questions fundamentally came back to the kind of the repertoire de la cuisine or escoffier. In other words, high-end European fine dining type questions. Michelin rejected Chris the first time. The following year, he took the test again, and this time he was hired. But just because he passed didn't mean he was ready to dole out stars quite yet. First, he had to train under a more experienced inspector, traveling all across the UK. You spend six to nine months in a car with a work colleague who you have zero relationship with and nothing in common bar probably a love for food and wine. And you're thrown together in the front of a car and you spend arguably more time than you would with your significant other. What they're kind of seeking is something that is quite elusive. It's people with a very neutral palate who don't have likes or dislikes, but have a general appreciation for food. Chris says he was trained to be a replica of the inspector teaching him, so he could evaluate restaurants in the exact same way as other Michelin inspectors. They're not looking for innovation. They're not looking for a different perspective. They're looking for similarity in everything. So one Michelin inspector eats a dinner in a restaurant, and the following night, Another inspector goes and eats exactly the same meal in exactly the same restaurant, and the result should be the same. Constantly, your senior inspector is asking you, what do you think of this? Why would this not be a two-star? Why would this not be a one-star? Michelin's restaurant ratings all began with the Michelin Tire Company, which was started by two brothers in France in 1889. First, they made parts for horse carriages then bicycle tires, and eventually car tires. To promote tire sales, the brothers created a small red guide with maps, information on how to change a tire, and where to fill up with fuel. Eventually, the guide expanded to include a list of recommended hotels and restaurants in Paris. And then, in 1926, the guide began to award stars to fine dining establishments, at first marking them only with a single star. Then, a few years later, they introduced a hierarchy of one, two, and three stars. The Michelin brothers said a one-star restaurant had high-quality cooking worth a stop. Two stars, excellent cooking, worth a detour. Three stars, exceptional cuisine, worth a journey. And that rubric has stuck to this day. Chris describes the differences in a little more detail. A one-star level should have a chef's personality on the plate. You're looking for a level of talent in the cooking. Faultless. When you move up the ladder, you're looking for more complexity. So on a two-star plate, you're looking for maybe a little bit of innovation in terms of the combinations. You're looking for much more complex presentation. 
The difference between two stars and three stars in terms of the plate marginal, I think that Michelin have always kind of made it clear that it's about consistency. In other words, Chris says, moving from two to three stars is less about a jump in quality, more about showing you can maintain that two-star level for years. For places that already have stars, Michelin still reviews them every year to see if they should gain or lose a star. As for places without stars, to have a shot, they first have to get on Michelin's radar. Chris says Michelin will reach out to locals in a food scene and to area tourist boards for recommendations. Based on that input, the inspectors dine at a bunch of places, evaluating every detail. Your arrival experience, uh, welcome through the door. If you're offered an amuse-bouche, small welcome drink, escorted directly to the table, do they assist with the chair? Is there some level of professionalism and efficiency? Obviously, appearance of staff, attire, how they speak. What's their knowledge of the menu? Ask them about a certain course. I'm talking about the knowledge of the dish composition. Is this spicy? How is this presented? How is this cooked? Can I have the lamb rare? Efficiency in taking an order, whether there be any options or any choices. And then the arrival of the first dish. Looking at the dish itself, was it complex? Did it look tidy? Was the plate clean? Of course, technical. You know, scallop, just cooked. Still a little bit shiny, a little bit translucent in the middle. You know, overcooked, undercooked, neither works. Perfection. Temperature of the dish. And See, Chris, even- now the inspector has come out. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, um, the sad thing is that you can never lose that. When you go into restaurants socially, just wife, family, you, you keep looking around and subconsciously grading the place. You walk into a restaurant and you know, you just know. But the final call isn't up to just one inspector. If the first inspector thinks a place warrants recognition, Michelin sends others to double check. Every year, Chris and his colleagues would get together and discuss their recommendations for the guide. Do we disagree? Of course, healthy disagreement. But because of that incredible training program, invariably we're pretty well aligned. It would be very rare for three or four inspectors to say, I think it's got to go. And two inspectors say, no, we had a fabulous experience. How, how do you feel today looking back about the about how they do it? How, how do you feel about the quality of the process? You know, I, I'm super loyal to the guide. I think they do a fabulous job. Like anything, they're human and guides make mistakes. I think that their process, the anonymity, they, they've got such integrity. But as I said to Chris... I was curious about this idea that each inspector is trained to be a replica of the inspector who came before. If the guide started with French cuisine and for decades after kept its focus on Western Europe, and each new inspector is trained to have the same palate as the last one, how much of a concern is it to you that that perhaps unwittingly the inspectors are going to have a kind of built-in bias towards European cuisines or towards certain types of cuisines? I'd probably be upfront in saying that my knowledge of ethnic cuisine in those days was was much, much less than today. There was a little bit of a, a rumble when Michelin launched the Japanese guides and uh, uh, there were a number of different restaurants rated with three stars and the, the Tokyo chef community questioned the fact that non-Japanese inspectors rating Japanese restaurants was a little bit worrying. But they weathered the storm. Now we should say Chris was an inspector in the 80s. It's possible things have changed since. 
but he's one of only a few former Michelin inspectors who've ever talked to the press on the record. We did reach out to Michelin to see if this is still how their inspection process works, but they didn't respond to our request for comment. So overall, Chris is pretty much on board with the way the Michelin Guide hands out their stars, with the whole process. But not everyone feels the same. I talked with Erica Adams, editor of Eater Boston. In Boston, there's not a single restaurant with a Michelin star, Erica. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Is it just that the restaurants there aren't good enough? That's what I kept hearing. That's how people kept phrasing that question to me. And I hear this stereotype over and over about how Boston's dining scene sucks. It doesn't even have a Michelin guide. And I'm, I'm like, that's not, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Coming up, Erica tells us how it does work and why she thinks it should work differently. Stick around. Time to cook up some advertisements. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line, they take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast They drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. 
Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle, and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep, tooth-sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week was our Salad Spinner Year in Food episode, and we had a lot of fun with our rapid-fire roundtable discussion of food news. We looked at the biggest, strangest, and most surprising stories from the past year with Jaya Saxena from Eater and Zach Stafford, one of the hosts of the podcast Vibe Check. And there were so many stories from this past year that I kind of forgot about, like when Starbucks debuted their olive oil coffee or when McDonald's created a Grimace shake and the internet decided that Grimace is a queer icon. As a fellow member of the LGBTQ community, I did not go to McDonald's, but I did support from afar. Also, as a queer person, I did not try the Grimace <laughs> shake, but I I love Grimace as a queer icon the same way that, like, Gritty is a queer mm. icon. Just anybody that sort of uh, is, like, vaguely menacing, but in a fun way. We'll get into that and a whole lot more in The Salad Spinner. Check out that episode now. It's called Rise of the Foodie Bro. Okay, back to Erica Adams, editor of Eater Boston, in our discussion of the Michelin Guide. I told her that I'd spoken to a former Michelin inspector. One of the things that this former inspector said is that the training process basically was like riding shotgun with an experienced inspector for months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sort of the idea being like, we must train you to use the exact same standard that every other inspector uses. So on one hand, like that's an impressive level of rigor. On the other hand, when everyone is being trained by an inspector who came before them, you kind of run the risk of every inspector thinking and tasting and approaching food the way someone might have 75 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if that kind of plays into, like, it definitely seems like Michelin is holding the line of, like, this is what it thinks fine dining is. This is what it thinks a three-star restaurant is. It is these omakases. It is these fine French and Italian restaurants. When this year's stars for New York were announced, one restaurant that was left out was Tatiana, a new place from Chef Kwame Anwachi. It's fine dining, pricey, with a menu that celebrates Kwame's Nigerian roots and his childhood in New York City, with dishes like truffle chopped cheese and oxtail and crab rangoon. New York Times restaurant critic Pete Wells named it the best restaurant in the city in 2023. And yet, it didn't get a star. Yeah, I I think when Michelin is perhaps kind of like not re-examining how it rates these restaurants and just kind of passing down the same techniques information over years and years and years, um, like, yeah, that creates a very consistent rating system, maybe, but it doesn't account for how our dining scene has changed so much here in this country, um, especially in the past three years. And there's another reason why Erica has concerns about Michelin's system. In 2019, the newsletter Family Meal reported that some cities and regions actually pay Michelin to come review their restaurants. According to the New York Times, this dates back to 2010, when Michelin hired the consulting firm Accenture. Michelin's profits on the guide were way down because people weren't buying the paper guides anymore. So Accenture recommended a few measures Michelin could take to spread brand awareness and boost revenue. One of them was to add a new category. There was already the stars and the Bib Gourmand category for cheaper restaurants, but now there would be recommended restaurants, sort of an honorable mention below one star. More notable, 
Accenture suggested a new revenue stream, ask tourism boards to pay for Michelin coverage in their areas. Now, the tourism boards would just be paying to have Michelin send inspectors and rate the restaurants in that place. From there, it would be up to the inspectors to decide who gets stars. And it could be a city tourism board or a state or region. That would be a case-by-case decision. Anyway, since this new system was implemented, it's been widely reported that some tourism boards have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for the guide to evaluate restaurants in their regions. I don't think there's like anything perhaps inherently bad about this. Again, we have to remember like Michelin is a publicly traded French tire company. Like they're in the business of making money. The issue that Erica does have with the system, the average diner doesn't know anything about it. So they think that Boston's restaurants don't have any Michelin stars because they're no good. Not because Boston hasn't shelled out the money to bring Michelin to town, which is the actual reason. For a story she wrote earlier this year, Erica went to Boston's tourism board, which is called Meet Boston. She asked them if they had discussed paying Michelin to come to town. And then during that conversation with Meet Boston, I found out that Michelin had approached them and they had had initial conversations. And Meet Boston said, no, we're not interested in paying for it. Because in Meet Boston's eyes, it's like, okay, what if we pay you know, $500,000, a million dollars for Michelin to come in. And then they grade, you know, five restaurants get one star. It's like one small sliver of Boston's restaurant scene. So the concern was we're going to spend all this money to recognize a very tiny sliver of our restaurants. And is that really the best use of our money? Yes, yes, yes. Now, Michelin also claims that it's not just about the money. They say that, um, yes, the tourism board has to pay, but they won't take money from just any city or town. Oh, I'm so annoyed by it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they said New England in it. What was the actual quote? Right. So so uh, Gwendal Pulinek, who is the director of the guides, said in an interview the company's inspectors also have to assess the maturity of the culinary scene and look for the vibrancy and dynamic potential. This was cited as a reason why places like Florida and Colorado and Atlanta have guides, while New Orleans and all of New England do not. Uh, you know, first of all, New Orleans. How how does New Orleans not have vibrancy and dynamic potential? I, I don't get that. But what do you make of that, Erica? This idea that, that part of why New England hasn't been raided is because <laughs> it lacks vibrancy and dynamic potential. I remember when I first read the story and I had to like sit back and do some deep breathing with that because (laughs) Meet Boston had said that Michelin did come to them and try to open conversations about having the guide in Boston. I don't know exactly what those conversations were and how far along the line they got, but clearly there was some initial interest there. We asked Michelin if there has ever been a city or region that's approached them to do a guide and said they would pay for it, but Michelin turned them down because they didn't think the city's restaurants were up to par. As I said, Michelin didn't respond to our questions. Anyway, Boston's tourism board turned Michelin down. But not everyone in the city agreed with that decision. After Erica published her story revealing what had happened, a group of local chefs banded together and confronted Meet Boston. The chef said... Michelin actually would be a huge boon for business for us, you know, no matter where on the list we land or if we do, just having Michelin in this city would do a lot for uh, raising awareness of the restaurant industry here, attracting talent. People would want to work here more within restaurants here and then attracting tourism, too. Um, Yeah. And 
people who are coming into our city for all of our other very well-known industries, whether it's sports or academics or science, they're looking at Michelin to, you know, kind of decide where to eat. And Erica says there's anecdotal evidence that no matter how many stars a region gets, just having a Michelin presence there gives the whole dining scene more cachet. Eater did a story earlier this year where they looked at Vancouver's restaurant scene, which they got a Michelin guide for the first time last year. And so this reporter was checking in on the dining scene six months after getting the guide. And the overall sentiment seemed to be, at the end of the day, yeah, the dining scene overall was elevated from having Michelin come in. This is a rising tide lifts all boats situation. So, Erica, if I put you in charge of Meet Boston the Boston Tourism Agency. Michelin came to you and made a pitch, said, give us this amount of money. I mean, based on what we know other cities have paid, we can assume it's at least in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. You said no, but now all these chefs came to you and said, we really think you should reconsider. But look, you know, you only have so much money in the budget, Erica. There's other priorities. You know, the USS Constitution needs to be fixed up. Quincy Market might be falling apart. The duck boats need repairs. Everybody wants something from you, Erica. So... (laughs) So of of this limited budget, are you going to spend that money to have Boston get rated by Michelin? Here's what I would do. (laughs) Maybe this is a workaround to the answer. I don't know. I would go to Cambridge and Somerville and Brookline and Quincy, which are other cities right around Boston, and I would band together with them. And yes, I would pay for the guide to come in. Because to me, it's worth it from the attention and awareness that it would bring overall to Boston's restaurant scene. And I think Boston has never been a place where you think of its restaurants first. Um, and this, it is another way um, to, yeah, to bring attention to Boston's restaurant scene. And I think it's worth it. And I think restaurants are a cultural touchstone. The city would benefit from yet another outlet examining its restaurant scene. I mean, in some ways, I'm a little surprised by how little some of the cities have to pay. Some of them were just a few hundred thousand dollars, or even if it's a million dollars. I mean, like like for for a big city, big cities have budgets in the billions of dollars. So to pay one million dollars to do something that's going to grow tourism and restaurant scene in your city for years to come doesn't seem that crazy to me. I know, I know, me neither. That's why if I were Meet Boston, I would pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. Erica for president of Meet Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want that job. <laughs> Despite all of Erica's frustrations with Michelin, she still puts a lot of stock in the guide. When I lived in New York, I really liked dining out at one Michelin star restaurants because sometimes you got a tasting menu, sometimes not. And it was just like at that intersection of chefs doing really interesting things and also having a certain skill level. Um, I'm trying to think of a time that I walked out of a Michelin-starred restaurant in New York being like, damn it. But I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. So far, Erica hasn't seen or heard of any evidence that Michelin taking money from regions affects which individual restaurants get stars. While these tourism boards do have an interest in getting as many stars as possible in their areas, there's no indication that that has translated into an attempt to influence Michelin's ratings. Michelin did not respond to our questions about this issue. Of course, even if Meet Boston does change its mind and pay for the guide, 
It may not make everyone happy. The city of Denver paid, but when their stars were announced, one of the top restaurants in the metro area, a place called Annette, was left out. Not because it wasn't deemed good enough, but because it's 500 feet past the Denver city limits in Aurora, Colorado, and Aurora's tourism board declined to pay for the guide. So it seems the places that have Michelin stars really deserve them. But there are some great spots that get left off the list, especially if their food isn't European or if they're not in a major city. And if a city doesn't have a Michelin guide at all, it doesn't mean they don't have good food. It may just mean they haven't put Erica in charge of the tourism board. That's Erica Adams of Eater Boston. My thanks as well to former Michelin inspector Chris Watson and Chef Vijay Kumar of the New York restaurant Sema. Next week on the show, it's our annual New Year's food resolutions episode. I'll debrief how it went with my New Year's food resolution for this past year, which was to eat more black pepper. Plus, I'll share your food resolutions for 2024 and I'll reveal my own. We'll also replay one of Team Sporkful's favorite episodes from this past year. While you wait for that one, check out last week's Salad Spinner Year in Review edition. I talked with Vibe Check host Zach Stafford and Eater correspondent Jaya Saxena about the biggest and weirdest food stories of the year. Plus, I get to hear their biggest food complaints. And I have a few complaints of my own. That's up now. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Production this week by Julia Russo. Editing by Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Lillian in Boston, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.